we have journeyed, uh, and there's a key word that we see over and over and over again through the book of Mark. I, I say a key word. It's not really a key word, I guess, uh, maybe a little overstatement, but it's a word that Mark uses often. It's the word immediately. He uses this phrase all the time, this one word. He just says, immediately Jesus did this. Immediately the disciples did this. Immediately the next thing. And he has used that word, I mean, probably 20, 30 times already through this book. But now we come to a third of, basically almost a third of the book of Mark is spent. All of a sudden he's been immediately, immediately, immediately. And then now we come to this long, slow look at the last week of Jesus' life. Mark has been trying to get us to this week for a while now, as we've been walking through it. But he was trying to get us there as quickly as possible. And I believe there is a lot, of, a lot for us to learn. This has been kind of the main theme. If you're like, I'm, I'm new to this whole thing of, of books of the Bible, and you're like, what is the theme of Mark? I've, I've heard that before. I've heard it's a gospel. Uh, maybe it's, you maybe even heard another level of it's a synoptic gospel, meaning that it is one of the Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke, and it's a synopsis. They, they work together, and there's stories from each angle as Matthew's writing to a certain audience, as Mark is writing more to a Gentile Roman audience. Uh, and you have Luke as well, who's formulating uh, eyewitness accounts about the, G- the life of Jesus. It's about the gospel. We saw the very theme. If you want to go back to it, you can look at the beginning of Mark, Mark chapter 1. And this is exactly Mark's aim, is to present Jesus and his gospel, the gospel of why he came, this good news. And so the theme and really the question that's been presented by Mark throughout his whole writing is this question. It's, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And what is he like? And so, and so Mark has outlined for us all of these things. He's shown us his authority over everything. We've seen his authority over disease, his authority over life itself and death. We've seen his authority as he even preaches and teaches. He comes and he speaks with something that's different. We looked at this, I mean, months and months and months ago, but when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, they were amazed at Jesus. They're saying, who teaches with this kind of authority? Because the rabbis and the teachers, they would point to other rabbis and other teachers of the law, but Jesus was pointing to a higher, he was the authority. He spoke with confidence, he spoke with authority and spoke straight as if he was, in fact, more than just a man. And Mark has been presenting Jesus as more than just a man. He is the God-man. He is God incarnate. He's the God who came. And this is the God that we find in this book as we're answering this question, who is Jesus? And we're coming to this last week. I mean, this is Monday. Here we are. Here we're coming into the last week of Jesus' life in Mark chapter 11. And this morning, uh, as you see on the screen, is like, what does a donkey figs and the temple teach us about Jesus? And what we're going to see this morning is it teaches a whole lot about this Jesus. And so this morning, what I want us to see first and foremost, if you're taking notes, is Jesus is in complete control. You know, Jesus has been predicting, he did it three times in the book of Mark, he predicted his death. He was predicting, he was telling his disciples why I've come. We looked at that last week, the first time we get the why. We've been told that he's going to suffer and die, and the disciples are kind of, they're kind of blown away. They're like, no, 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 Jesus, you can't die. You're the Messiah. You're the, you're the coming king. You're the, you're the one who's going to lead us into freedom from Rome and through all of our oppressors. We're going to come to rule and reign this eternal kingdom that they have in mind from the line of David. 
And so they're excited, and so when Jesus talks about his suffering and his death, they're just confused. And what we find is Jesus is even in complete control, even of his own death. This is not by surprise. So look with me if you have a Bible in front of you, Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. A famous passage. Uh, some churches would teach on this every year, right before Easter. Uh, others maybe, maybe don't teach on this every single year, but it's probably somewhat familiar to you. If you're new to the faith or Christianity, you may have, like, you're like, I have no idea what this means. Well, good you're here this morning. So Mark chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, see, Jesus has been saying, this is why I've come. I've come, and he's ready to go to Jerusalem. We looked at last week. He's leading the way to Jerusalem in front of his disciples. And so now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt. <laughs> Can you imagine the disciples actually, you know, they fumbled a lot along the way, but here they're going to be successful. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They go in. Sure enough, here's a colt tied at, the door outs- a, 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 at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Can you imagine, though, being the owner of this? You're like, what are you guys doing with my, my colt? And, so, and, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. They do, they, look, look, good job, disciples. You're doing exactly what Jesus said. Finally, you're doing what he said to do. And, the, and they do, and they say, and they, and they brought the colt, and they said, and they, um, sorry, and they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And here, Jesus is doing something that was predicted. Austin read it earlier from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Jesus is in complete control of the events of history. He is fulfilling prophecy. He is doing exactly what he is supposed to do. He is fulfilling what he was meant to be and who he is. Jesus is coming in, and he knows exactly what is happening. He's fulfilling all of the steps some of these steps, though, I want you to understand this, you know, because like sometimes you can say, well, predicting history, well, it's not really predicting something if you control the situation, right? Like, I said I'm going to go to BP to get gas today. Okay, well, great that you said that. Now I'm going to make sure I go do that. So I, man, look, I'm a prophet. <laughs> I told you I would do that. But there are many prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus, if Jesus is just a man, could not have controlled. For instance, I did not control where I was born. I had no control over that. I didn't have control over what family I was going to be brought into this world in. I had no control of where I was going to be born, that I was going to be born in Charlotte, North Carolina. I had no zero control of that, but Jesus yet fulfills the prophecy of being born in Bethlehem. He's born of a virgin. These are her prophecies that, that was fulfilled by Jesus, but Jesus couldn't control them if he's just a man. But here we see, again, he is in complete control. And notice, he has this ability to foreknowledge and know the events that are to occur. He knows that there's going to be a donkey. There is going to be a man who's going to have that that no one has ever ridden, and he is telling his disciples to go to that donkey and bring it to him. You see, Jesus has foreknowledge. He has the ability to see beyond because he's more than just a man. That's something I can't do. 
I could even say I'm going to do, I'm going to go to BP today and I'm going to get gasoline, but something could happen along the way and I didn't fulfill what I said I would do, whether it's death or whether it's something else or I forget or whatever. Jesus is in complete control. And I want you to see this, this Passion Week, how Jesus is going to be in complete control of the events that come. He, none of this is like, oh no, I wasn't aware Judas was going to betray me with a kiss. I didn't know that this was going to happen. I didn't know they were going to flog me. No, we've read. He knows these events are coming. Jesus is in control of the situation. This is going to go exactly how he planned it from eternity past. But from this, I want you to see something that's important. Some of us, I I mentioned this last week about the disciples and them sharing all their stories of blunders and saying that I believe, personally, that this, that is a great a, a help to us in understanding that what was written down was, in fact, what was written down. Like, that they didn't make this stuff up. Like, if you're going to write a story, you're not going to tell stories about that make yourself look bad. You're not going to go over and over again, look, we kept failing. We kept messing up. We kept doubting Jesus. No, if they, if they, if they really believed that, and that's exactly what happened, well, that's the only reason you're going to write those things in, is because, well, we kept blundering. We kept going and blaming other people, and we kept saying, I'm sorry, Jesus, I thought you were going to do this. No, the reason they wrote those things down was because they actually happened. They didn't make this stuff up. And here, what we see, too, is you're saying, well, how do I know if Scripture is true? Well, first of all, here's Jesus saying he's putting his trust in the Scriptures. He's fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies, and he is constantly quoting the Old Testament. If you're wondering, like, how do I know that the Old Testament is true? How do I know that this is the Bible? Well, first, if you're starting to believe in who Jesus is, he uses Scripture more than anyone else. He's constantly pointing back to the Old Testament. We're going to see more fulfillment. Look what happens next. Jesus is in complete control of the situation. Here, he tells them there's a cult. Here, untie it. And they brought the cult to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest And it tells us in verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Here he comes, Jesus, riding on this colt of a donkey. Here is this, like like a miniature donkey picture. Picture this. Here's an adult male in his 30s sitting on this donkey. They've put their cloaks on this donkey. And here he comes. He's entering. The king has come. I kept picturing this because I've watched and, and uh, all, I mean, all, basically all, every, like the whole series of the Lord of the Rings, all the different ones. And I can't help but picture, it's like, here's Gandalf and here he comes and here he comes riding on a donkey. No, he comes on this steed, this stallion, this beautiful white, this war horse coming to lead in battle and to, to, to free them again, his oppressors. And this is the picture that the disciples are imagining. Can you think about this? They're, just, they're, they're imagining this picture of a, of a man riding on his horse. Here he comes to, to war and here he comes to rule and reign. And here's his 12. I've read it's, a, it's interesting to see the, 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 the complete opposite picture in 
uh, Islam with, Mus- with Muslim and Muhammad and how Muhammad entered into Mecca and how he entered on this very big steed. And here he comes with hundreds upon hundreds of, of, ar- of a war and army coming with him to overtake this, this property and this land to, to establish Mecca, complete opposite of what Jesus was doing here. And here Jesus comes and he's riding on a donkey. He's coming in, but notice the audience. The audience is quoting Scripture. They're quoting Psalm 8, 118, 25 through 26, which, which declares, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's the audience. They're declaring, here he comes. This is our king. But here's what I want you to write down right, and to understand about this passage is this. Is Jesus is not the king they wanted. They wanted this king to come. And they're thinking, here he comes, he's going to save. Here he comes, he's going to, and here's what his salvation is going to be. What do you think his salvation is going to be? They're under the thumb of Rome. The, they're occupiers on their land. They don't have the freedom, and they're ready for Jesus, this son of David, this kingly line. Here we go, back to the days of David again. We're going to have a new king, and he's going to come, and he's going to bring a kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom. They are getting the picture. There, Here comes Jesus. He's riding in, and they're remembering Zechariah 9.9 that was read earlier. They're remembering. Here he is. This is fulfillment. Here's the Messiah. He's coming. And so they're saying, save us, which is Hosanna. Save us. The problem is they're saying the right things, but don't comprehend the salvation that they need. They don't think they themselves need the salvation that they're going to need. They think they need to be rescued from the oppression. They need to be rescued from the occupiers. They want to be rescued from Rome and freed again, but they don't recognize that their sin is what's separating them from a holy God. That the salvation that he brings is going to come through his own death. A cruel criminal's cross. You see, Jesus is the Messiah and he has come to save, but not in the way that they expected. You see, this same psalm that they're quoting here in Psalm 118 is also going to be quoted. And if you have a Bible in front of you, you see it. It just kind of maybe stands out. The quote is in verse 10 of chapter 12. Have you not read the scripture? This is the same passage of Psalm that they're quoting. Hosanna, save us. Here he comes in there, laying down their palm branches in respect for a king entering in. But in that same passage, Jesus quotes in verse 10. We'll look at it next week or in the coming weeks, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, he comes, and he's going to be rejected. They come, save us, O king. Save us, Hosanna, glory. And here he comes. We're going to worship him. Here he comes. We're ready to follow. We're ready to go. But he's going to be rejected in the same exact week. You see, they were clueless that he came to judge them and actually bring salvation, notice this, to the nations. Salvation is for Israel, but the salvation is going to be for all people. It's for the nations. It's not just for Israel. And we're going to get our first clue from a confusing miracle. It's the last miracle 
in Mark's gospel, if you aren't counting the resurrection, that's kind of an important miracle. Um, But this is the last miracle that we see. Last week we saw the last healing, the healing of blind Bartimaeus. This morning we see uh, the last miracle, and it's an interesting one. Let's look at it. Verse 12, on the following day, so Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He's stopped by the temple. He enters Jerusalem. It tells us in verse 11, went in the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. So on the following day, moving on to Tuesday, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Right there, even just the small details the writers write for us. We're getting a picture of his, of, his, of his sovereignty, that he is in complete control of the situations. He's in complete control of fulfilling scripture of old, and yet here he is also the God-man. He's hungry. I feel like they just sneak those comments in every once in a while to show his humanity, but also his deity. Here, he's hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it is not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. (laughs) And they're going, what is he doing? And why did he curse the tree? I think what we've, sadly, if you just read this kind of quickly and maybe uninformed, not knowing even the greater context of what we're about to understand about the temple here in just a second, this can be a very confusing uh, miracle. You're like, why did Jesus, it says he was hungry, he goes to a fig tree, the fig trees doesn't have figs on it. Has anyone ever had a fig besides a fig newton? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, nice, nice. We, Amanda and I, we had our, our very first house in Elberton, Georgia, in the backyard, had a fig tree there. It had these big leaves, leaves on it, leaves, leaves on it. And, uh, and we would take, every once in a while, we'd go out there and pick some of the, the figs off of it and eat it right there. It was very tasty. I, I, so if you've never done it, you should try it sometime. Uh, just maybe hard finding one. I don't know where they are around here. Uh, I know at least one place, but it's about an hour and a half from here. So, um, but in that backyard of that house where we were. But it sounds a little bit odd. You're like, is Jesus like just upset, like, like hangry or something here? It's like he's hungry, and then he walks up, and there's a fig tree. And maybe he's like, oh, I can't wait to have a fig today. I'm excited about this fig. Because it tells us he sees it in a distance. And as he gets closer, is he getting annoyed? Is he like annoyed that, man, I was really hungry, and there's no figs. Curse you, tree. Is this is what's happening here? No. <laughs> That's not what is happening here. What's happening here and what we're going to see is through the lesson of the withered tree that we're going to see in verse 20, but also the story. This is a, Mark does this often. He does a sandwich, right? So he, he'll, he'll tell one story and he'll have another story or he'll have the same story, but then a middle story right in the middle. This middle story is going to help us understand the fig tree that's happening here. And what we're going to see is the unfruitfulness of the Israelites, the unfruitfulness of the temple that's happening in Israel. And here's this picture. I'm going to explain that in a second, but I want you to see first what Jesus is coming. And Jesus is not this king that they wanted, but he's exactly the king that they needed. But here's where Jesus comes as he's entering into the temple. Jesus judges. I want you to see this next is Jesus judges hypocritical worship. Fruitless worship. Hence the fruit image of the figs that we'll see here in a second. But look at verse 15, and then I'll, once we walk through this and we see 
Peter's response about the fig tree will explain about more about the fig tree. So if you're wondering, Eric, you said it's confusing and then you didn't explain it. You're not helping us any. I'll explain. Verse 15. And they came to Jesus and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Think about that. Jesus, I love that detail there with, for Mark. He, you know, the picture, you know, maybe you've, you've kind of had a mental picture of this. Jesus comes in. He sees all this bustling activity. It's like a bazaar is happening. And it's like just all this bustling activity. And there's this money changers. Because, again, there was a temple tax. And so if you come from another nation and you're coming, you, you live in a different area that has different money. If you ever exchanged uh, money somewhere when, as you went to a different country, here they would come and there was a temple tax and they only accepted the, uh, their, the temple tax coins. And so naturally they had to convert that. And so here's the, the conversion of that happening. And here's the selling of pigeons. And here's sacrifices. I mean, I think it was Josephus that explained like, two, I mean, 250,000 lambs being slaughtered at, at certain times when these festivals would come. And here the people come, and they're buying and interacting and using, and I want you to see this, they're using the Gentile court to do this. What was meant to be a place for worship for the nations had become a place of exclusion and saying, no, no, you can't be here, and here's, we're using this territory to only allow the, the Israelites to come. And Jesus is here. Jesus comes. He drives them out. But I had not really paid attention to this until studying actually this week. Was It's almost like he's a bodyguard as well. Here he is. He's driven out. And it tells us, he says, and he would not allow, verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. It's like he stood there and said, nope, you can't come through here. I'm sure the, the, Jewish, the Jews and the religious leaders are like, who are you to determine this? Who are you to withhold this? How can you stand there? Like as this bodyguard to the temple. What gives you this kind of authority? They have no idea who they're dealing with. The God who instituted the temple is the God who's standing in the temple. And they have no clue who this Jesus is. And here he comes. And notice what he says. This is an important phrase. I want you to hear it. Verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is not written. Or is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, as Mark tells us. My house shall be a prayer for all the nations. This isn't an exclusive club only for Israel. This is for my salvation that I come to bring. And worship is not just meant to be just for Israel. It's for all people to come. It's for the nations you see, they're clueless and they're so focused. And Jesus is quoting again and again from the Old Testament scriptures. You see, Jesus came, and I want you to hear this. Jesus, well first, let me stay here for a second. Jesus, as he's judging hypocritical worship, he's condemning what the activity that's happening in the temple and what he's doing and going back to our fig analogy and our fig hyperbole that he, and this story that he's using about a fig tree, or not hyperbole, uh, using this story and showing it this live action happening, actual story of cursing this fig tree is because what he's saying is he sees unfruitfulness in the temple. You see, this phrase, this den of thieves or this den of robbers, comes from the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 7, 
Uh, feel free to turn there if you want. But Jeremiah 7, uh, in verses 1 through 29, we get to see this picture of what's exactly happening. And he's talking about the evil that's in the land of, of Israel. And here he's talking about his cleansing, that he's going to come and he's going to cleanse with fire. And he's going to cleanse these, uh, this evil, hypocritical worship. What he was saying is this, that the people... This den of robbers, this picture, is they'd come and they'd used, they would, almost like hiding out, like hiding their hearts with religious activity. Their hearts were far from God. Their worship was not worship. I mean, if you read the minor prophets, that's the picture you see over and over again. Is God's judgment for phony, hypocritical worship. Fruitless worship. I keep using the word fruitless because I want you to picture this fig tree. Here's this fig tree that, yes, the fig tree does not produce fruit year-round. But the picture of the fig tree is something that's used as a picture of Israel in the Old Testament oftentimes. Even if, if you read in John 15 and you're hearing about Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, if you are to abide in him. And I in you, he says what? You will bear much fruit in season and out of season. Here he is seeing this fig tree off in the distance. It has leaves. It looks fruitful. But as he gets closer to this fig tree, there's no fruit. This is what he sees as he gets close to the temple. He comes to the temple. He comes in. He sees the worship activity, but he sees through. He sees through the phoniness. He sees through all the facade of spiritual activity and prayers being offered and songs being sung and sacrifices given. But he knows the hearts of the people, that their hearts are far from him. You see, the, the picture of the fig tree is a picture of the fruitless people of Israel here. Sadly, that fruitless people is found in a lot of churches across America and across the world. People who numb themselves and they hide themselves from all of their problems and their trials and they'll come and attend church and they'll, they'll come and be a part of a church and, and come and sing songs. And you might say, behold our God seated on his throne. And then we go back and we behold our own lives and we behold the things of this world and we put our eyes on the things around us and we worship those the created things rather than the creator. We, we can come with worshipful mouths but unworshipful hearts. We can sing praises to this God, but our hearts are far from him. And God says, that's worthless worship. I don't want to hear any of it. You see, he sees right to the heart. And Jesus is coming, and he's coming to judge Israel. He's about to, this temple's about to be destroyed. Physically, it's about to be destroyed. Jesus is going to die, and eventually Rome is going to, Nero is going to, Nero, a Roman emperor is going to set fire to, to Jerusalem, and he's going to set, there's going to be all kinds of things that come, and eventually it's going to be destroyed. Every rock's going to be fallen over. And Jesus is going to say something about this, that he's going to tear down this temple, but he says this, in three days will rise. And they laugh at him. They're like, how could you ever build a temple back in three days? Because he's talking about a different temple. You see, Jesus comes and he sees this temple. He sees the phoniness of worship. He sees the activity and he's calling it for what it is, hypocritical worship. Phony, fake, which is ultimately worthless. 
And he comes and he comes to judge. Again, remember what we said earlier. The king is coming, is the king that they needed, but not the one they wanted. They didn't want this. They, they didn't come for this. Don't kick us out of the temple. Don't drive out the activity. Don't, don't come in condemnation. No, don't do these things. But it's exactly what he does. He comes and he brings judgment on them. But notice next, and if you keep writing, and we're trying to learn more about this Jesus. Yes, Jesus judges hypocritical worship, but Jesus came, and I already read it, Jesus came for the nations. In Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 7, uh, and specifically in verse 7, we see Jesus, or God saying, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. But if you read, starting in verse 3, he's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about the nations. And so this quotation is a big deal. They're saying, wait, the Gentiles are going to come and worship in his holy mountain? They're an unholy people. How can an unholy people worship God in his holy mountain, the temple? How, how could he worship him there? I love what John Piper says about these verses in his book, Bloodlines, he said this, Over and over, Jesus shows that the people of God will no longer be defined in an ethnic way. The new people that he is calling into existence is defined not by race or ethnicity or political ties, but by producing the fruit of the kingdom. This will mean a new global family made up of believers in Christ from every ethnic group on the planet. And it will mean that those who love that vision will work toward local manifestations of that ethnic diversity. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism, globally and locally. Not color, but faith in Christ is the mark of the kingdom. But it is a mighty long journey and the price is high. Jesus was on the Calvary Road every step of the way. He knew what it would finally cost him. It would cost him his life, but his heart was in it to the end. You see, Jesus is coming and he's cleansing the temple. And, and I, I, I read this, this phrase in different ways uh, over this past week, but it's Jesus comes and, he's, and he's, the, the, the Israelites wanted him to come and eradicate Rome and eradicate the nations, free us from the nations, but Jesus was freeing it for the nations. He's paving a way to reach the nations. And Jesus comes and he cleanses the temple. And the verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. They were just, not them, but the people are laying their cloaks on the ground. They're laying they're laying palm branches and saying, save us. And now they're already saying, crucify him. We don't want his salvation. His salvation isn't what we need. We need a different kind of salvation. You see, Jesus is not the king that they wanted, but he's the king that they and we need. We need salvation from ourselves. You see, our hearts are the problem. And Jesus comes to cleanse, not just cleanse. He really comes to condemn. He comes to establish a new and better temple. He's going to come in fulfillment. He is, this passage really is like it's, it's coming as a prophet. He's speaking as a prophet in this way. But here what we're finding is he's coming also as not just a prophet, he's coming as a priest. 
and a better priest and a greater high priest. We see he's a king. We see he's a prophet. And now we're seeing even more so that he's also a, a priest. And it tells us as he's, uh, as he's going, it says in verse 19, And when evening came, they went out of the city. You see, Jesus came for the, the, the nations. He came to bring salvation to all people. And as we transition and, we, and learn again about this lesson from the withered fig tree, we look at verse 20 through 25. So Jesus leaves. He comes to the temple once. It was late in the evening. He comes. He sees everything. He looks around. He leaves. The next day he comes and he drives out the unfruitful and the, the phony worshipers. He drives out the temple, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And then now we come to verse 20, and it says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Crazy, the next morning. It's withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And then we get this Interesting response in verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. He says in verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, let me just add really quickly a couple comments on this. One is, it is very dangerous. It is very dangerous to pull out Scripture and use that scripture for your own benefit. Many, many, many people and many pastors and many um, movements have pulled out passages like this. Just rip it out of context. Take it out of, don't, don't apply anything from scripture and the whole of scripture or even the direct context. And just say, hey, name it. It's a phrase, name it and claim it. You're like, man, name that thing that you want and pray and it should be yours if you have enough faith. And the reason that you don't have it yet is probably because you don't have enough faith. If you go to Africa today, Africa is full of prosperity gospel. One of my good friends, uh, one of my closest friends, and probably my closest friend in, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, was, was also from, uh, from India and grew up in Oman as well. And he talked about the churches that he grew up in as well. We're very much along this line of this prosperity gospel. Hey, like God wants to bless you. Pray for God's blessing. Like if you live for God and you do what's right, God will bless your life. And you just, you just like have enough faith and then you'll get what you want. It's this picture of a genie in a bottle kind of God for you. You name that thing that you want, you know, and then, and then when some, can you imagine the audacity that pastors and others, other people who believe these kind of things and say, listen, when they look at someone who's struggling and, in, and had hardship or death or loss or, or struggle through a trial and someone look at them and say, man, like, hey, like you just got to believe more. Hey, if you just believe more, you'll be out of that situation. Man, how, 
How foolish. To think it's just because you just didn't believe enough that you could do something, that you, like, you could have your will be done. Now, put, let's put this back into the context with which it's written. Because this isn't just, like, this isn't just jump to the next story. Hey, in the next day, Jesus said, taught them about prayer. And here's what he said. No, this is in the context of the fig tree. This is the context of the cleansing of the temple and a lot about temple. Because he's coming to, now here's the beautiful thing. You, like, Jesus is coming and he's going to tear it out. Like, this temple is going to be destroyed. The picture is when Jesus is on the cross and he dies on the cross, the picture is what happens next. Death comes, what happens? The veil is torn in the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. This picture is torn, and it's torn from top to bottom. It's this picture that God has torn the veil and access to him. This temp, you're known, you don't need a high priest to intercede for you because he is the great high priest. You don't need a sacrificial system anymore because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, a one-time sacrifice. If you're like, I need more on that, read and study Hebrews. We'll walk through that book at some point. But in Hebrews, we get a picture of Jesus being the great high priest. And he comes to intercede for all of us. And he comes to pay the price for all of mankind, for those who put their trust in him. Jesus is creating. He's establishing something. that He's saying, I'm now going to dwell with you. Not just alongside you, in you. My presence is going to be within you. I'm going to send my spirit. The, you are the, and this is how, why Paul says, you are, your body is the temple of the spirit of God. God dwells not in a house, a built structure, a temple in Israel. He dwells in the follower of Jesus, in each and every one of us who follows Jesus. He dwells in us. And when his presence is with us, we hear, as he's saying, and he declares it in verse 22, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Trust me, the person who trusts me fully. And here's what I want you to hear, and I want you to hear this, this truth. I don't have this necessarily as a, a point written down, but I want you to hear it. You can trust God, and I, I put it this way, I thought through how, how to say this best, but I want to say it this way. You can trust God even if the religious establishment fails you. I've heard that many times before. I, 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 can't follow, I, I can't follow Jesus because, I, because too, many, too, many people, too many people in the church have, have hurt me or this has happened or that has happened. And so, no, I can't trust God. Now, shame on the church and sh- shame on many congregations and churches who have failed people over the years through abuse, through hurt, through leading them astray in a false gospel prosperity gospel. Many have failed, but Jesus is saying, even as in this picture of the temple and the unfruitful worship, and he comes and he's, and he's basically tearing down and condemning the temple system as it, as it was in this day. He comes in fulfillment and he tells his followers, have faith in God. And he says this, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, he's using hyperbole, saying something, something that is so impossible that if you faith, have this kind of faith in me, have this kind of confidence in me. He's saying it's meant to be this impossible. We're to have mountain moving faith that is seen, notice this, it's seen by our prayer. 
You see, we should be a dependent people, a trusting people, a prayerful people. And this is the exact opposite of what Jesus found as he came into Jerusalem. But this is what he's calling his followers to be. True, dependent prayer doesn't, I want you to hear this, doesn't try to treat Jesus like this genie in a bottle. But rather, it is a people who pray that God's will be accomplished through our lives. We aren't praying to get God to change his will to fit ours. We are praying to align our will to his. That's why Jesus said in the model prayer, you know, as he's praying, the, the disciples are like, teach us to pray. And he's, part of that prayer, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. You see, praying, listen, I want you to hear this, praying that kind of prayer takes radical trust. Because you know what that means? It could mean hardship. It could mean loss of family. It could be loss of loved ones. It could be a loss of a job. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not my will be done. You see, praying like this, praying in alignment, because here, if the Spirit of God is dwelling in us, we'll be praying these kind of bold prayers for God's will to be done in and through our lives. You see, we are the temple now. God's presence dwells within the true follower of Jesus. And so naturally, our temple, and I want you to see this, our temple is to extend the same kind of forgiveness that we have experienced in Christ. You see, the temple here was pushing away the the, the nations, pushing away people outside the covenant. And they're, they're saying, no, you're not welcome here, even though there was a place in the temple for the outsider. And Jesus says, I've come and I'm establishing a new temple. My presence is going to be in you. And so we're to extend the same kind of love and prayerful dependence as God. And that's why he says, look at it here. In verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. You see, the person who forgives is the one who recognizes how much they have been forgiven of. If you're the temple of the Holy God, if God's presence is indwelling you, you're going to Present yourself like God. Your your attitude and heart is going to be like his attitude and heart. His heart for the nations, his heart for people. And so if someone has offended you, you're ready and willing to forgive. Now, is that easy? No. And maybe you're saying, God, I'm entrusting it to you. So you pray about it and you hand it over and says, God, your will be done. I want to pay them back. I want to get even. I want to slander them or I want to reject them. But God, I know that you have... I slandered you and have rejected you, but you were gracious to me and you showed me grace and mercy and you you awakened my eyes to your gospel. And I recognized my need and I sought your forgiveness and you forgave me of my sins. Who am I to withhold forgiveness from others? You see, we model not like the temple that we found Jesus here coming to, but we model Jesus in our passage. We model Christ and we prayerfully and with a forgiving heart, we recognize the forgiveness we have received. My question this morning for you as we close this morning, 
first of all, is, is there fruit? And when we say fruit, is it like numerical? Is it like, all right, I, I, you know, like our, our church is being fruitful. We're having, we have many people are starting to come, and more and more people are coming. That, may, that means we're fruitful. No. It's our heart. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Is, is the, as a follower of Jesus, this fruit should be evident in our lives, a love. What kind of love we have for other people, love for one another. What kind of joy is present in my life? Do I have this kind of peace that says God's will is going to be done and so I trust Him? Do we have patience? Or we run around trying to do what we think we know is best and not what God has. So we're not patient. We're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. How about kindness? At work, are we harsh? With our children or parenting, are we harsh or are we kind? With your friends and with your loved ones, with coworkers, with people that you meet, are you, like if someone gets your order wrong, are you, are you like... You berate them or you're like, man, this waiter was terrible, so I'm not giving you a tip. Are you kind? Listen, we should be having the fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives, and it's, it's a heart kind of fruit. It's a fruit that shows. It might look from a distance like a fig tree here that it's fruitful from a distance. People might see you from a distance and be like, man, that's that person. They, they attend church, you know. But as they get closer and closer to you, do they get to see the real you? I mean, yes, we're all broken. Like, am I always kind? I wish I was. I've probably been unkind to you. Know, you know, when I haven't slept but two hours in a tent the other night, it was hard to be kind the next day, <laughs> you know, uh, over our camping trip this weekend. Um, like, like, yes, are we, are, we, are we perfect? No, this is why Jesus came, because we are imperfect. But as we're becoming more like him, this fruit becomes to be evident. So, like you and I, does Jesus need to come and clean out some areas in our lives? Does he need to remove the besetting sin, some sin that is holding you from faithful worship and true worship of a holy God? Is there something there? Do you have a heart for the lost? Do you have a heart for the nations unlike what we're seeing in this temple? Do you have God's heart for all nations? Do you pray for, you know, we have the chapels come. They're, they're missionaries to Papua New Guinea. And they're talking about the nations and hearing God's heart for this people group who, who as, as they work, to continue to get a translation into their own heart language. As he's working on, and he's getting Romans to these people and he's getting uh, Ephesians and getting them the gospel that they walked through the book of Mark and he said they were getting ready to study that again uh, or for the first time here soon. I thought that was really neat to hear. I mean, these are people that are trying to reach the nations or are we just so caught up in our lives? Because here's the reality, the nations are right here among us in our neighborhoods. I mean, I've heard it said that Gwinnett County is one of my most diverse counties in all of America. Right here in Gwinnett County. The world is here with all of its religious practices and all that. Are we praying for God, to, for God to open up a door of ministry in the nations and among the nations? Are we praying for the lost? Are you praying for the neighbors around you? God help us to have his heart. God help us to live in light of eternity. God help us to bear fruit that is attractive to the world.